What if uh, this morning we said, thank you, Laura. What if this morning I said, you know, um, we're doing a little science experiment at Southwark this weekend, so we put a little bit of COVID-19 on every seat. We put a little bit of anthrax on every seat. Uh, we just put a little bit of salmonetta, salmonella in every coffee. And is that okay? We're just doing a little experiment because just a little bit. You would go, wait a minute. Why? Because we intuitively know that some things, just a little bit, can do a lot of damage. A little bit can do a lot of damage. And today we're in this section in this letter from a Jesus skeptic, James, the former skeptic of Jesus, who happened to be his brother, became this unbelievable leader in the Jerusalem church. He wrote a letter that is called the book of James in the New Testament. And uh, in it, he tells that he lays out, here are the things that we should focus on. And of course, as followers of Christ, we cannot ignore, as he treats here in chapter three, the tongue. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 18 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. How many of you have experienced the power of just a few words that could kill or bring life? Most of us know intuitively that something of relatively small size can have far-reaching and devastating effect. And this is certainly true with our words. There may be some of you here today who uh, just already today, you've messed up. On the way in here, you messed up. And the revival is going to come to you today because uh, we're going to speak into this most powerful element in our bodies that uh, gives all of us power. All of us are all powerful when it comes to the quantification of our words. And so we're just going to walk through about 12 verses where it was clearly a problem in the early church and how people were using their words. And so James is very direct. And he opens in chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, dear brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, that is interesting. I always thought of that verse as a double bind because I had to teach it. And he's just saying here, those of you who are going to use a lot of words, just know that you're going to come under a lot of scrutiny. It just comes with the territory. It is coming with the territory, and someday if you mess up, you're going to have to face the music that spiritual leaders, people who teach as their calling, are held to higher standards. And he's just simply introducing, hey, words are so powerful, be careful how you use them. And, and uh, you know, one of my greatest fears is we live in a culture now that if you say the wrong thing, you're done. You're done. And your career is over. And trust me, I, I know that I am so above reproach that you think that'll never happen to him. Oh, yes, it could. It absolutely could. How many of us think of the, the verbal faux pas we've seen done in public? Here are a few famous ones. Richard Daly, the former Chicago mayor, at the 1968 Democratic Convention was happening and the riots were taking place. He famously stood before a group of reporters and said, the Chicago Police Department is not here to create disorder, but to preserve disorder. Daly, he had those weekly. He had faux pas weekly. 
Former Vice President Dan Quayle said one time, I recently toured Latin America, and the only regret I have is that I didn't study Latin harder in school so that I could converse with all those wonderful people. Oh, man. Former French President Charles de Gaulle once said, China is a huge country inhabited by many Chinese people. I've had this happen, believe it or not. One time I was speaking at a church in Indianapolis, and it was a college teammate of mine who was uh, one of the pastors there. He introduced me and gave me a really, uh, just honestly, a flattering introduction. And I stood up in front of these people. I didn't know any of them. It was like a group this size. And I said, thanks, Mike, for that introduction. I don't appreciate it, but I sure do deserve it. (laughs) That didn't sound right. (laughs) How do you walk that back? Some, some long-time Southworkers remember this. I was preaching one time, and I was telling a story. And I meant to say, and I was telling the story, I took my wife and two kids. But I said I took my kid and two wives with me up to, <laughs> down to Cincinnati. But I didn't know I said it. And so there's this little trickle of snickers that was happening that turned into a flood of chuckles. And uh, finally I said, what? What? Because it is so insecure to be in front of a group of people who are just (laughs) just don't do that and finally you know they told me how my Freudian slip was showing and uh yeah we if you if you talk much you're going to mess up and James says this in chapter 3 verse 2 he says we all stumble in many ways raise your hand if that's true right we all yeah you stumble in many ways Those who are never at fault in what they say, you can look at their whole life, they got it together. Because if you can control your tongue, they are perfect, which really the word means complete, mature, able to keep their whole body in check. You can see where he's going with this. This is the big one. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Proportionate to a 1,500-pound animal, the bridle, the bit, shouldn't be effective. But it is. Or take large ships as an example. They're so large, driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder. Wherever the pilot wants to go, likewise... The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It has the capability to corrupt the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So he's saying when it's at its worst, The tongue is nuclear power. Nuclear power. I just finished a book on the the origination of the nuclear bomb and then how that led into the Cold War and the nuclear arms race. And it's just stunning when you read something like that, how close we came to us not being here today. It's really amazing. But just a suitcase, just a suitcase, of the right stuff can create devastation that wipes out a city of millions. And James, if he were here today, he might say just a suitcase could wipe out an entire city. And that's the power of the tongue. 
something as disproportionately small as the tongue can have far-reaching and devastating effects. So here is the takeaway today. Here's what James is telling us to put it in the sentence. Is, is your tongue has really two aspects to it. One is your tongue, your words reflect your heart. And the other is your tongue, your words direct your life. And this is not advice. He's stating an axiomatic principle. This is axiom. This is, this is as sure as gravity. Your words reflect your heart and soul and your words direct your life. Tell me how you talk. I'll tell you what you're going to be like in five years. We obviously deal with this a lot with the Players Box ministry in which we tell kids, now this is neuroscientific fact now, that if a young lady says, my mom is depressed, I am depressed, my kids will be depressed. She literally turns those genes on. In her book, Switch on Your Brain, you literally, the what you say has the power to slip, switch on DNA. It's unbelievable what the scriptures had said forever. We now neurologically to be true. Your words have the power of life and death. First of all, your words reflect your heart. Look at these words that are just stunning statements from the mouth of Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You you. You want to know who you really are? Evaluate the words you say when you didn't think about what you were going to say. Those, that's really the condition of your heart and soul because all of us can manage our words. But when you evaluate the overflow, when it happens when you're not thinking about it, and good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in them. Look at these. Look at these words. This is sort of a scared straight statement by Jesus. I tell you that people will have to give an account account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's sobering, isn't it? For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. I, I think we can react to that by saying, you know, wait a minute, I thought it was about grace. It is. But we can know just by an inventory of your words where grace is really operative in your soul. All you have to do is evaluate how people use words. And you can tell, oh man, that person has amazing grace operating, flowing out of their heart and soul. And so, you know, the mouth is the billboard of the heart, someone said. And so we have to look hard at this. Because there, there is some level of accountability on this. Really three ways that we have to look at, aren't there? Number one is lying. Lying. Either that is intentionally distorting the truth, misrepresenting the truth, missing the truth, or withholding. Uh, we're all more guilty of lying than we would care to admit. And scripture says that lying breaks the heart of God. Isn't that interesting? Why? is because it kills relationships. God fundamentally, our heavenly father, is fundamentally truth. That's what he is. He's fundamentally a truth teller. And he sees the devastation of deceit and it breaks his heart, it, the scriptures say. Now, you sit there going, I know, but it's the norm, right? It is the norm. 
Lying is the standard in society. I remember writer Hugh Mulligan wrote one time, uh, words that we say are here, and we know they're not the truth, but we accept them. Open wide, this isn't going to hurt a bit. No need to put anything in writing. A handshake will seal the deal. It's easy to assemble. Just follow the simple directions. Please, Dad, I'll walk him and feed him and train him and everything. You know that's a lie. That's a lie. I didn't get up here to give a speech. <laughs> it's easy to find. You can't miss it. Two can live as cheaply as one. Mothers only stand for two weeks. You'll hardly know she's in the house. <laughs> the check is in the mail. And in conclusion, here's my favorite. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> we know those things aren't true and yet we accept them anyway. And so Proverbs is just full of stuff about deceit. And, and Proverbs 12.22 says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in those who are truthful, who say what they mean and mean what they say. Or what about the big one? This is the most socially acceptable sin in the church. It's gossip and slander. Most of us are not very confident in conversation. What's the easiest way to talk to people? Talk about other people. Because we're not very confident. You know, the best people talk about concepts and ideas. The easiest thing to do is, is just to slip into a conversation about those who are not present and talk about somebody else. To make it clear on this, gossip is the act of sharing anything about someone when the act of sharing it is not a part of the solution to that person's problem, a direct part of the solution. Now, why that's critical is gossip is justified by us if it's the truth. We think it's justified if we're saying the truth, but it's still gossip because it's not a part of that person's particular problem. There's an old story Billy Graham used to tell about a, a gal who was known as the town gossiper. She was, uh, she, everybody knew it, but everybody was afraid of the hammer of her gossip so that nobody ever wanted to confront her. And one day she made the mistake of gossiping about Ted. Ted was a construction worker and a man of few words in the town. And she had seen his truck parked in front of a bar one afternoon. So she started spreading the rumor around town that Ted was an alcoholic. And she confronted him on it. And he just stood there and looked at her. And he walked away. That night, he took his truck and he parked it in her driveway and left it there the whole night. <laughs> You can use that one. Try that out sometime. You know, slander is related to gossip. Slander is a little different than gossip. Slander is just damaging someone to do it. Gossip is one of the darkest sins, and slander is the darkest sin of all. You know, you can, even in the scriptures, we see some people, you know, you, you can understand why some people steal. They become so hungry. They become so, you can understand that. But slander is just, I mean, it is dark. And I know we in the church, we get hung up about certain sins and, 
and you know, especially around sexuality and stuff. And it's important. Sexual purity is so important. But I'm telling you, I've been part of the leading the local church for almost 40 years now, and I'll tell you, gossip and slander do way more damage than anything else. Way more damage. Have you ever gotten a letter from someone that said, you know, I've been saying some bad things about you and I wanted to apologize? It is the strangest thing to get that. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? I've been slandering you in public, but I want to apologize. And when you are the object of that, you know how damaging that is, how just disturbing it is. It's because it is really evil. And one of the things that that social media allows now is more of an outlet for slander. It really does. Look at a couple of these verses. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Take a picture of that. Think about that this week. Is my conversation full of grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Or here, I mean, all we need is this one. Colossians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Isn't that interesting? Talk in such a way that the people hearing you go, oh, wow, that was, that was good. That, that benefited me. That kind of integrity and compassion and grace be the person in the office, in the classroom, in the neighborhood that people hear you talk and go, we, we got a better neighborhood now because of her. We've got a better office because of her. Obviously, the other one that we have to look at is name calling, which again, especially in the political arena, is totally justified. It's totally justified. And you see here, you know, ardent Christians calling names. Jesus said this, he said, I tell you, that anyone who says to his brother, brainless, empty head, that's what raka means. Raka was like onomatopoetic. It sounds like, raw. they would actually say it that way. Like, I'm going to spit on you. Contempt is answerable to the court. But anyone who says, you fool, which was a judgment of character, in that culture, it was a judgment of character, you are good only for the fires of hell, will be danger in danger of the fire of hell themselves. In other words, Jesus said, you watch the overflow of your heart when it comes to name calling, because the object of your name calling probably is not going to be damaged by that as much as you are. Now, I know that, that I mean, this, this stuff gets close to home, because we're aware of it, but it is more socially justified than so many other things we do. But I don't know, as one who has spoken in front of people for a living, I don't know of a more practical topic than this one. You know, I was thinking about this week in light of Asbury's revival. In 10 years, we'll know if there's a revival there. I love what's going on in Asbury. Were there reconciliation of conflict? Was it, was it? Then we'll know. Were there missionaries that came out of that? Are there people who, who confess gossiping and slander and, and they stopped? They repented of that. Then we'll know, won't we? And this is one of the subject matters that we should leave here today in a spirit of repentance. 
The word repentance means met, is metanoia. It means change the mind. My, my brain needs to change. My brain needs to change. One time, our group's leader, Frank Crockett, wrote about, he said, when I was a senior in high school, I used to hang out in the senior hallway after lunch every day. That place every school has where underclassmen have to wait their turn because this is the place they stand that say, says, I've arrived. It was in the fall, so most of us football players would gather in the hallway and underclassmen would have to walk the gauntlet of seniors having fun at the expense of underclassmen. One story in particular that stands out was the story of our linebacker, tough guy, and this particular girl who was a senior. Every day this girl would have to walk down the hallway to her next class, and this was the only way to get there. And for some reason, the football player found her to be a daily target of put-downs and punchlines. He would make fun of every possible aspect of her being, her clothes, her hair, the way she walked, the way she smelled. And this went on every day. She learned to put her head down and speed up her walk to get through. I'm sad to say that the way we all responded was every time he would rip her on her way, we would join in the laughter at her expense every day. We did not really see the changes taking place, but then it was late winter and the senior tough guys are still gathering in the hallway every day and the same girl has to walk through this gauntlet every day and the same guy makes fun of her and the same guys laugh. But she looks different. Her hair was thinner. Her cheeks were sunken. Her clothes were baggy and her skin was ashen. That didn't matter. This guy still made fun of her. We didn't know what it was called back in the early 80s, but knowing what I know now, she was definitely struggling with an eating disorder or depression or both. Graduation day arrives, and we all get the news. She had taken her own life. And I think to this day, this guy took this girl's life with his words. She was driven to a place of hopelessness. I'm ugly. No one wants me. I'm worthless. I don't know about you, but I think of Cindy at our school. The tongue has the power of life and death, doesn't it? And I know that's a sobering story. You say, Charlie, why are you telling a story that's that sad? It's because you may not know it, but you're doing that in your family. You're doing that in your classroom. You're doing that in your hallway. You're doing... James says... Chapter 3, verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed, have been tamed by the tongue, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He's saying in its worst state, the tongue is like a viperous mouth. Just a little bit of that poison can cause a slow death. And this is really pertinent because remember, he's writing to Christ followers and he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. We sing, we come to church and we say, oh, your life, your goodness is following after me. And then we go out and we curse somebody on the other political party. We've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? We've got an integrity problem here, he says. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. You've got to decide what is the condition of your heart and what are you going to do about it? And it begins with a spirit of repentance that I, I'm, I'm not going to justify this anymore. My, I am powerful. You are powerful. And it's right here. 
Now, here's the other part of this, is that your words direct your life. James says when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make obey us, we can turn the whole animal. We'll take ships as an example. They are driven by such a small rudder or a, or a large forest fire can be started by a small spark. And he's simply saying that words not only reflect your life, your heart, they direct your life. Master control of your tongue leads to master control of your life. If you say, you know, it, it, Charles Dewey talks about uh, gateway habits. What are the habits that you begin to engage in? Just one, one push-up a day. One push-up a day leads, is a gateway habit that leads to your brain being conditioned to exercise, and it leads to three years later, you've lost 30 pounds. And James is saying, you know what the gateway habit of spiritual development is? It's your tongue. Just focus on that this year. Just focus on making sure you're the kind of person that honors God, has a tongue that's full of grace. Because master control of your life leads to master control, your tongue leads to master control of your life. And the opposite is true. No control of your tongue leads to no control of your life. Think, think about this, Southbrook. You're a student, you're at a party, you're offered drugs, alcohol, and you have the discipline to say no thank you. And you begin to develop a reputation if someone doesn't do that. It directs your life. Or let's say you're married and you and your mate are drifting apart a little bit. Your marriage is losing its romance. How do you, what's one of the simplest ways to relight the fire? It's by controlling your words. You say those three magic words that can rekindle any marriage. Let's eat out. <laughs> you know that's true. Works in mine. You look nice. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. How many affairs, how many lives have been wrecked by these words? How many lives have been wrecked by these words? I feel an attraction to you. I feel the same way about you. And a, and a fire is lit. Your words don't just reflect your heart. They direct your life. You tell me what you're saying. I'll tell you where you're going to be in five years. Do you know what's a tragedy of that story about the linebacker who made fun of the girl? A few years later, he took his own life. Because your words direct your life. Proverbs 18 in the Message Bible says, Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. You choose. Just a little word or two or three can dictate a life. It's, it's amazing. So somebody wrote this. Somebody wrote life's most meaningful words. And what I want you to do today is, is you know, obviously when it comes to evil, you, you, you do not eliminate evil from your life by focusing on the evil. You eliminate evil from your life by focusing on God's grace and his goodness. And you focus on that so much. It's like I, we tell the Players Box kids, light is undefeated against darkness in history. Light has never lost to darkness. You go in a room and flip the switch on, if the light comes on, darkness always loses. And the way evil is beat, Paul said in Romans, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So you fill your life with grace. So what I want you to do today is, is if you feel, I, I needed this today. I need, to, I need to have time of communion today. I need to have a spirit of repentance today. I need to say, Lord, forgive me. I've been reckless with my words. I, I'm not a life giver when it comes to words. I'm a life taker. And the way to overcome that is to acknowledge it, to confess it, and then, but I have your amazing grace running after me. And I receive that today. I receive your amazing grace. And then I want you to think about one of these phrases. Okay, here's one, here's one of these phrases. I know that, that this is a sobering lesson. But somebody wrote, life's most meaningful words. You're wonderful. It's benign. The war is over. It's a boy. It's a girl. No cavities. <laughs> Thank you so much. All is forgiven. God bless you. You've been accepted. Welcome home. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Your car's ready. You pass the exam. Your child is beautiful. You were right. <laughs> I'm ready to sign. I love you. Just words, aren't they? Powerful. Words that can direct a life. Words can kill. Words can give life. You choose, Southbury. Let's pray. Father, I pray a spirit of, of repentance has taken our church today. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We know that a life that is full of deceit and gossip and slander and profanity and criticism and complaint is really a heart that's full of anger, hurt. And in this altar moment, we bring that to you and say, here, your goodness has been chasing after me, and I just let your goodness win. I give you all my anger that's trying to come out sideways. I give you all my fear. I confess to you, Lord, that I've been deceitful for my own purposes. I confess to you, Lord, that I've gossiped about others. I've slandered. I confess to you that I've called names and it's, and it's all justified because I think I'm right. And I pray that you make me the kind of person that my words give life and benefit those who listen. We come now to the altar of grace. We come to the symbol, 
the body and blood symbols of a redemptive act so profound that all sin was taken. It's, our minds can't comprehend this amazing grace. Amazing. But it took every, there's no reason for anyone here to stay disconnected from you today. There's no reason. Everyone can come because you already know. You already know. You could give us an inventory of our words if need be. And today we, by grace, come clean. And we're not going to try to overcome evil with evil. We're going to come overcome evil by allowing the light of your goodness to flood our hearts by grace. And Southbrook will then be known as a place where the people who come out of there are people who make neighborhoods better, who make offices better, who make schools better, who make teams better, just by their presence. And so thank you. And by the way, we love you. We love you and thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. See you next week. Mm -hmm.